Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I chat with David Nage, Principal and Head of Strategic Relations at Arca. David is no stranger to the crypto space. Many of you tuning in may also be listeners of David's podcast called Baselayer, which I encourage you to check out. In this episode, we tap into David's insights on all things family offices and discuss the inflection point around the Bitcoin conversation. What finally convinced many family offices to seriously consider allocating to Bitcoin? What was the major catalyst for that inflection point? Why is it hard for family offices to be contrarian? What are David's conversations like with family offices today? And what types of questions are they asking? We also had a lot of fun digging into some of David's old tweets. I had a great time chatting with him. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, David, thanks so much for hopping on Crypto Unstack today. It's really great to have you on the show. It is my pleasure. Looking forward to a great conversation with you today. We're just talking about where we were yourself, uh, no longer in New York for this time of year, but rather nestled in the mountains of Pennsylvania. But New York is a place that I miss very much. You know, when I used to walk down the streets of New York, one building I used to pass by all the time in Midtown was the Seagram Building, mm -hmm. which was commissioned by none other than Samuel Bronfman. And anyone who knows you will know that prior to crypto, you came from the world of family offices. Yep. And the Bronfman family is a well-known East Coast family office you worked with. What was a memorable story you remember about working with this family? It is something that I talk a lot about in terms of the broader family office world, where family offices for hundreds of years or if we talk about the last 200 years, have been early supporters of emergent technology that for years goes unnoticed. And with the Bronfman specifically, it was my pleasure working with them as they endeavored into early stage technology formation and support of carbon capture. Carbon capture is something we talk about a lot now. You have Sir Richard Branson, you have others out there that are supporting all of these new efforts uh, specifically to make this world more sustainable and the passion and the drive that the family had in terms of supporting this technology when no one really cared about it, no one was really paying attention to it, no one really understood it, but the drive and the vision that they had, whereas you know many people get focused on the next five minutes or the next five weeks, they were thinking about the next 50 years. Um, and this is what family offices do very well, is that they're set up to not necessarily just think about what's going to happen next week, but what's going to happen next decade, what's going to happen next century, and how are we as a family going to support those endeavors. And so it was a very special time to be able to, to see that, to support those efforts. And I think, again, that is where family offices really become a very important part of the overall capital formation and capital technology support, that they are there with capital. They have wisdom. They have experience. They have seen bouts of volatility. They have been able to pivot. They're very unique because it is what we call patient capital. They're not looking for immediate returns, whereas a fund or a large institution has LPs. They are there with their capital. They have that vision. They have that patience and they can support 
these types of new emergent technologies better than most out there. And would you say a big focus, broadly speaking, was impact investing? That was a large part of it. Um, they also supported other endeavors in some new spaces. You know, another space that everyone is talking about is cannabis, and they were very early supporters of that. Thinking beyond just the recreational side of it, but thinking about the medical utilization of it and being able to, again, see that where no one was really talking about the medical uses of THC you know, years ago, and they had the foresight and the ability to see that beyond just the recreational side of it, there is a medical use for it and being able to support those efforts, help them commercialize, help them globalize was something that, again, really indemnifies what family offices do so well. Prior to working with Bronfen Family on the East Coast, you were managing director of the Pond Valley Family Office based in Santa Barbara, so on the West Coast. And I picked up on this phrase, shared mission, which is part of Pond Valley's mission statement. And from you know what I read, the idea behind this shared mission network or movement is to generate impactful solutions for the world. Um, so David, if I can extrapolate a bit here, was this quote unquote, making a positive impact at scale, was this mantra an important ethos you carried with you in the various investment roles that you took on after Pond Valley and eventually into the blockchain and crypto space? Absolutely. Technology is there to hopefully make the world better, whether that's the advent of voice over IP, which we now use every single day when we're using things like Zoom where we could not be connected to our family and our loved ones, and it allows us to see their face and talk to them like they're next to us. Or whether it's genomics that has effectively provided some of the pathways to the vaccine that we're seeing now for COVID. You know, the technology aspect and the support of that technology um, and having a impactful part of society is incredibly important. It's you know, we would say that we're not just looking for the next Facebook. Social media platforms come and go. Um, they do have some good, but obviously they also have some drawbacks. But if you're able to support technological change that also enhances society, makes life better in any way possible, whether that's financially, whether that's socially, whether that's medically, it has a more of a timelessness to it. It can go longer than just a fad. And a lot of these technologies that you see being supported, a lot of these new startups are fads. Whether TikTok is a fad will be seen, but a lot of these new things that have come up in the last few years could be defined as fads. Whereas something like, as I said, genomics or mRNA technology or CRISPR are going to be timeless because we're going to need to use them time and time again for help in various different ways. And so I think that has definitely carried into my focus on distributed and decentralized systems, i.e. blockchains, because again, you have the ability to, for instance, help the 1 billion people around the world who don't have any kind of capacity to enter into the financial and capital markets. They don't have identities like a social security number. They don't have the financial history that someone here in the United States might have with a credit score. They might not have the identification that allows them to open a bank account. So there are things out there that we're doing in this new space that I completely carried over from my previous work. That's really fascinating. You talked about these fad industries, fad types of investments. 
when did you realize Bitcoin, the conversation around Bitcoin was shifting more from being just a hype, a fad, to something that was actually worth looking at? It took a long time. Um, you know, initially, a lot of the family offices that I would talk to, people I've known for a while, accused me in passive aggressive ways of supporting <laughs> horrible things like ISIS and drug trafficking by my work and focus on Bitcoin and, and distributed and decentralized systems. And, you know, it is something that over the last few years has changed. And so, you know, where we're at right now is family offices have started to identify that Bitcoin and predominantly what the mass media has reported in terms of nefarious affairs, in terms of it being used for horrible things around the world, is really not relevant and is not really the case anymore. This is something I talk about a lot. I'm going to just kind of wax on a little bit here. Early technology has historically been used, first and foremost, the first movers have been bad people. If you look at the, the automobile, you moved from horse and buggies to this new technology that allowed you to go quite fast, you know, very quickly without having to, you know, feed a horse or anything like that. And we saw that some of the early technologies like a car were used first and foremost by bank robbers, terrible people that were doing terrible things. And then over time, you start to have more mass adoption. You start to see utilizations of these technologies by more of society that are not just looking to mobilize it for bad things, but actually for very good things. And so Bitcoin, you know, initially went through its periods of time where you had people leveraging it for nefarious, bad activities. And over time, you have started to see it reach more of a product market fit with larger groups of society using it in ways that it's really kind of defined and, and potentially really kind of its purpose. And that purpose for many people out there today has been evolving, whereas it was a potential use for payments, cross-border payments. You have people in areas that are dealing with hyperinflation who have been able to use it to send money to and from their family members uh, and not have to use dark markets or black markets uh, that have taken advantage of those people for years. Uh, again, you also have those hyperinflated markets where their local fiat currencies have been debased um, and they really can't use them very effectively. But then mm -hmm. you start to move to more of a globalization where, unfortunately, over the last few years, we've moved into periods of extreme monetary and fiscal policy that have altered uh, the, the value of local fiat currencies around the world. Here in the United States, we're currently starting to witness what that is over the last few years, obviously, especially last year, printing trillions of dollars, uh, as Paul Tudor Jones says, magical money, if you will. That has led to deep concerns early over the last few months that we would potentially see inflation. And those inflation concerns are now starting to become not just concerns, but reality. And so Bitcoin plays a very important part of that. And as family offices have started to understand the pivoting of the narrative from early, you know, early technology users and dare I say abusers to now a tool that actually provides resource and actually a store of wealth, they are starting to really understand that there's a value there. And that is why you've seen more adoption over the last year and a half. Yeah, I love that you brought up 
Paul Tudor Jones because he is someone who you say has been a catalyst for family offices to take a serious look at crypto, right? And, and more specifically about Bitcoin. But you said before that his investment letter is an inflection point for family offices. Absolutely. And we're coming up on, I believe, one year now since Paul Tudor Jones wrote that letter. What has been the most apparent change amongst family offices and their attitudes towards Bitcoin? So it is absolutely a catalytical moment where for a while, and I have to say this, that people like Abigail Johnson at Fidelity commissioned uh, Fidelity Labs to start exploring Bitcoin in 2014. People like Kathy Wood over at ARC supported Bitcoin many years ago. And what happens is that when you reach a certain level, and family offices are, I, I should use a better terminology, guilty, but they are on this type of, of, of a wavelength where they look at what we call the cap table. You know, if they're looking at an early stage company or a later stage company, they want to see who, what other investors are there, what other kind of shared principles and guidance they can lever that way. And I always like to say that the cap table of Bitcoin has evolved tremendously over the last few years, not just from the early work of Abigail Johnson, Kathy Wood, and some of the other kind of stalwarts there, but it has now evolved to you know, legendary investors like Paul Tudor Jones from a global macro perspective. And what's really important about that letter was not just that it was written and that it supported Bitcoin and it stress tested Bitcoin relative to other stores of wealth, but a lot of people missed that it was co-authored by Lorenzo Giorgiani, who for 15 plus years was working at the IMF, not someone who is you know, a Bitcoin ardent supporter not one of these crypto anarchists that people kind of associated Bitcoin with, that Bitcoin wanted to tear down society and governments. This was someone who spent 15 plus years at the IMF, and he co-authored that with Paul Tudor Jones. And the immaculate work that they did in terms of stress testing Bitcoin and other stores of wealth was really what solidified it. It wasn't just saying, okay, I'm going to go speculate on Bitcoin because I think that it has the potential to rise in price. It was, no, here are all the components of Bitcoin. Here's the, the cap limit. There's 21 million of it. Here's the supply mm -hmm. schedule. You have the happening every few years. You know, this is it relative to gold and other stores of wealth. It was calculated and it was formulaic and it's resonated incredibly well. So after that happened, it was family offices. They would have their CIOs, you know, effectively maybe, you know, speculating on Bitcoin in their PA accounts for a few years. And then when that letter came out in doing you know, channel checks with other family offices and people I know, it started to really resonate with them saying, okay, this is a roadmap. This is something that we could effectively follow. This is something that we can take to our investment committees. And instead of just doing a small little personal account investment, we can now comfortably say that we can write millions of dollars into Bitcoin following the same type of methodology and calculation that this was laid out in. And so it was transformational. It gave people, as I said, again, this kind of cap table where they said, okay, he's doing this now. We now realize that Abigail Johnson has done it. We now realize that Kathy Wood has done it. We now realize that you know other people have done it. It opened their eyes. And that sometimes needs to happen where eyes are shut. They don't want to pay attention to it. This is a, a classic family office statement. I don't have the bandwidth for this. And for years, <laughs> many of them said, I don't have the bandwidth for this. And all of a sudden, he wrote that letter. And as I said, again, very elegant, 
very mathematical and calculated, bandwidth started to open up a little bit. And with bandwidth, you had capital coming in. So I want to press into this a little bit because I find it super fascinating. Why do you think it's hard for family offices to be contrarian, right? To take contrarian views because each family office is very different. It's not that they all have the same mandate, right? So why is it the case that it's so hard for them to be contrarian, especially about, I guess, emerging technologies, which is broadly speaking, a field that you've always been investing in? So family offices definitely have a core you know, if it's a family office that did real estate, if it's a family office that made their money in medical technology, if it's a family office that made their money in technology, per se, in broad-based technology, they have their core expertise. And what they like to do is use that core expertise in a way that can maximize their potential investment profits going forward. And so when you think about a family office and the way that they structured their investment portfolios, Many of them follow what we call the endowment model that was uh, articulated by people like David Swenson at Yale that really looked at a diversified portfolio where you have maybe 30% of the capital that you put out for the year focused on uh, hedge funds that have more of an absolute returning type of profile. You know that within a few standard deviations, you're going to get, say, 10 to 12%. Then they'll go into private equity and they'll do a few funds there. They'll do a little bit of venture capital. Um, maybe they'll do some funds and some direct investments. They'll do some real estate. They might look at things like hard assets, and they also might look at things like royalty streams, other kind of what they define as asymmetric return profiles. And then they also will probably have some allocation to some public equities. Um, and so when you talk to someone who is running a family office, when they're in, in charge and tasked with those investment allocations, it's not easy work. That bandwidth issue is definitely a real bandwidth issue. And so when they come across something that is new, that either the CIO has no prior experience with because he or she came from you know, a Blackstone or a Carlisle, where they might have been doing more private equity type of uh, investments, when they come across something as transformational as Bitcoin, and they realize that in terms of their daily activities, they don't have a tremendous amount of time to really learn up, they do at times just punt it. And then there are others out there who say, okay, I, I currently have an allocation or I have some space for something that is transformational. Maybe it's more in venture capital. Maybe it's something uh, that is very asymmetric and they will spend some time on that. But it really depends on how big the staff is. It depends on, you know, as I said, again, the prior experience of the investor and the family. And so a lot of that will kind of focus on what happens there at the family office. No family office is alike to one another. There are about mm -hmm. 10,000 family offices around the world and know which one of them are, are kind of similar in size and scope and focus as another one. There's really not a lot of pattern recognition there. So yes, you know, a lot of them will have an affinity and a mandate to focus on early stage transformational technology that could do tremendous amounts of good and also have tremendous amounts of uh, multiple uninvested capital potentiality. But then there are others out there who really just have to follow a line. They, they talk to the family, they talk to uh, the principals there, they, they focus on their core mandate, and they don't deviate. And so those that don't deviate, unfortunately, will miss some of, obviously, the opportunity set that's happened here, especially in digital assets over the last few years. But as you start to have more smart investors coming in, as you have more adoption, you have firms like Fidelity that you know started their digital assets business, you have Coinbase now going public. 
in the next few weeks. You have some really big things that have happened over the course of the last six to 12 months. It starts to open up some time there for them to really take a look at this, whereas before they would have been hard and fast and just kind of punted it off. So it really depends on a lot of different variables, and there's no one singular answer to it. Now, I want to pivot for a moment to talk about some of your tweets and retweets, which I think uh, are interesting conversation starters. I'll make sure that my compliance department knows ahead of time. Thank you. I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And one of these tweets is a shout out to 2 Idiot, who is Ryan from Masari, who wrote, quote, a wealth transfer from some of the weakest handed sellers I've seen in digital assets to those with an actual investment thesis. What do you think about that? It's a great question. Um, when you're just in this catch up of volatility, if you're just speculating here, you're you're at the will and call of volatility. And this is still a new emerging technology and a new emerging asset class with digital assets and Bitcoin. And there is volatility. We are starting to see that there's about four different legs of adoption of Bitcoin specifically where ultra high net worth family offices were the first two. Now you're seeing corporates and you're seeing sovereign wealth nations and sovereign wealth funds starting to come in. And as those types of entities are coming in, their their real vision is not a 5% gain and then maximizing out of that and then you know selling out of the position. They are looking at this, again, as a family office investor would know, they're looking at this as a multi-year kind of vision and they're willing to kind of experience that volatility. However, there are other investors out there over the time, and this is kind of the weak hands meme out there, that when there's extreme bouts of volatility, and there have been obviously over the last few years, that they capitulate and they sell. They do not have, in my opinion and in the opinion of others, a strong thesis here. You need to really understand what is happening beyond just the, the asset itself and beyond just the pure speculation. It's great to see you know, the Bitcoin price on CNBC now every single day running in real time. But there's something beyond that price. There is adoption. There are people out there that are understanding that this is, as you alluded to, something transformational. There is a younger generation that is coming into their own as a wealth transfer when you have the boomers that are now transferring trillions of dollars to a new generation who understand that there is more than just allocating to a hard asset like gold, that there is something more important uh, and leveraging technology. And a lot of us who are in that kind of transfer phase, who are kind of the benefactors of that transfer phase, are more digitally native. You know, we grew up with the internet, even though it was very early on uh, with AOL and, you know, Netscape and things of that nature. But we grew up with the internet. And the generations after us are going to even be more immersed in technology and digitally native applications. Um, They're not going to have this relationship to assets that were once used to protect wealth from extreme bouts of volatility and inflation that we're seeing today. And so all of this is happening at the same time. And what's happening underneath Bitcoin and underneath what people call crypto, we actually don't like that terminology. We call this the world of digital assets. What's happening here is that There are new networks that are being built using distributed and decentralized technology and architecture that are creating, as I said again, new modems for things like finance, where people who have been shut out of the financial markets for years will now, based off of some of the new companies that are coming out, 
will now have the ability to almost create a FICO score for themselves using blockchain technology and using some of their real world data and now have a, a, a FICO score, if you will, that is based on blockchain. That is highly transformational. And that is something that people, especially younger generations who have had a bent towards ESG investing, environmentally and social governance type of investing, could really get behind. They want to see their dollars not only make profit, but they want to see their dollars do something great for society. And so a lot of those themes are really filling into what's happening here with digital assets and blockchain specifically. And I think that's why you're seeing this, this extreme interest. And I've said again, over the last five years, I have never seen more interest and more understanding what's happening here within digital assets than I ever have before. When I talk to family offices and I talk to ultra high net worth people on a day to day basis, they understand that Bitcoin has a purpose and it serves a different narrative for different people out there. But they also understand that there is a whole new world that is being built on other blockchains, what we call layer ones, like Ethereum, like Solana, others out there that provide a vast new resource of sectors that are being built on there that not only could provide them, obviously, multiple invested capital potentiality, but also transform society from the inside out. This layer one universe conversation, I imagine, has taken a very long time. <laughs> just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. To actually come together because for so long it was, okay, let's just convince people that Bitcoin isn't a toy, right? As Chris Dixon uh, has famously said. And then past that hurdle, it was trying to convince people to think about crypto or digital assets as an investable asset class to begin mm -hmm. with. And then now it seems like that assumption is already there, kind of embedded for these family offices and high net worth individuals that you were speaking to. And they're wanting to just learn more. It's not so much drive the skepticism out of me. It is how do I become more of an enthusiast, right? How do I become smarter? Yep about the investments that I feel like if you as Arca are, are, are not helping me to understand, I'm going to be missing out on, right? There's this sort yep. of FOMO, like no one likes to use that word, but perhaps FOMO on an institutional level when it comes to this herd mentality that we kind of talked about earlier, right? When it comes to uh, family offices getting into these newer types of investments and newer types of investment fields, mm. that they're finding it very important to just go beyond the Bitcoin narrative right now. That's right. I'd say that there are a few things that have helped that. Um, what has happened over the last three months is there's been a huge new emphasis on NFTs, on non-fungible tokens. It did help that people selling his artwork for $69 million on Christie's really kind of got people, it was a shockwave. You know, we talked, you know, as I said, again, you know, the Paul Tudor Jones letter back a year ago was a shockwave. It was a catalyst, you know, people doing that and getting the kind of coverage was a shockwave, was a catalyst. And people started saying, well, what's an NFT? And for those that don't understand the NFT world, you know, people say, OK, well, it's just a JPEG. You know, it's just, you know, something, a JPEG. You can just copy and paste it and, you know, send it off. I don't understand it. No, what this is, is the ability to actually have ownership of something that is a digitally native asset. Whereas before, you could never actually really own that. It was if it was on, you know, on Google or if it was hosted someplace else, 
you could not actually have physical ownership of that in a digital sense. And so now with NFTs, you actually have the ability to not only own that, and it's not just art. This is another thing that's really important too. NFTs go beyond just the art world. You actually know that everything that's digitized, you can actually now have claims of ownership on there and show you actually own that asset. Mm -hmm. And this goes to gaming too, a world that a lot of family offices have been very supportive of for a number of years with esports. There's over 3 billion people around the world that play games pretty much on a daily basis. And when you actually realize that the assets, the things that you're buying on those games, whether it's Fortnite or PUBG or some of the other large licenses out there, when you actually participate and you buy those skins, you buy those avatar uh, enhancements that you don't own them. The licensee, Epic or whoever it may be, actually owns that. And when you are tired of using that, well, you've just lost 20 or $40, whatever you've spent on that. Whereas in the world of NFTs and what's happening here with digital assets, those games that are being built on blockchain, whether it's Ethereum, whether it's Solana, whether it's some of the other ones out there, the user actually owns those assets, owns those skins, owns those representations that they acquired in that game. And if they want to, they can then sell them on different platforms that have arrived over the last year and a half or two years. One like OpenSea, which just raised a very large round from Andreessen Horowitz. You, you mentioned Chris Dixon. And so now you have exchanges. You have places like Amazon, like as I mentioned, OpenSea. OpenSea is like Amazon meeting NFT world. And that just that didn't just happen. You know, the guys at OpenSea didn't just create OpenSea in the last three months because of people selling $69 million artwork in Christie's. They've been building it for the last two and a half years, if not more. And so mm -hmm. all of the work that's been happening over the last two and a half to three years to get us to this point where there's functionality, where there's utilization, where it's not just you know there, but it's actually meeting demand that's coming from outside. That's what's really special in it right now is that it's kind of a perfect storm. You have supply and demand meeting each other right at the right time when the infrastructure is actually there to support it. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, speaking of the partnership between Beeple and Christie's, there's going to be another high profile partnership between Sotheby's and PAC, right? And mm -hmm. this is going to be a ripple effect with many of the, for us, they are up and coming, but they have been digital artists for a very, very long time. There's just, they're just trying out a new medium and finding incredible success by harnessing this new medium and giving experimentation a try. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, finding out new ways to monetize their artwork, which is so justified in a world that is so harbored to a small group of people that is generally inaccessible to the sort of lower denomination of people, you know, when yep. it comes to fine art, right? Um, and in one of these NFT conversations, I remember tuning into uh, Lex Sokolin over at Consensus said something that I really found interesting, which was, you know, in the same way a family office might have some percentage of their portfolio covering art collections, Crypto investors are holding digital art through NFTs. And, you know, of course, as you mentioned, NFTs go way beyond art, but this 
mentality of building up a portfolio that includes art, right? But done in a way that is supported by blockchain technology is an incredible, incredible way for um, the sort of next generation of investors to start building up a portfolio whose diversification looks very different from the traditional investors. Absolutely. It is highly transformational. We, we talk about digital assets, what's happened over the last few years, and we like to use this analogy at the firm, is you used to have the Amazon Prime member. The Amazon Prime member in the last 10 years has had amazing utility. They've been able to get shipping in two days. They've been able to now get food vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods. There is conversation about potentially Amazon now uh, being able to fulfill prescriptions uh, out there in a real-time fashion. And so amazing utility. However, the Amazon Prime member has never been able to benefit from how well Amazon has done as a company in terms of equity, uh, whereas the equity holder has done incredibly well over the last few years as Amazon has obviously become what it has become today. However, the Amazon equity owner does not have the utility of Amazon. They don't have the free shipping. They don't get the Whole Foods Incorporation. They don't get you know, potential the new prescription services that they might be rolling out. They have the equity. And what digital assets have done over the last few years that a lot of people have missed is bring those worlds together where the digital asset is not only a representation of utility, where you get to benefit from the network that has been established, but also there is financial incentivizing there where the company is generating levels of revenue and that revenue is being passed through to the holder. And so it's very similar, you know, again, if you had to kind of think about it, imagine owning Amazon equity and also at the same time being given that Amazon Prime membership. That is what's happened in digital assets. And that's what's really special is that you now, for instance, and, you know, taking even a step further, Uber or Lyft drivers around the world did not benefit at all from their sweat equity. They weren't given equity in Uber or Lyft before they went public. And then the company went public and all the shareholders did incredibly well. But those that are actually doing the work, the, the network builders, didn't see a dime from that per se. They weren't given that equity. And now with digital assets, you have the ability to further that. Those that are actually building the network, supporting the network, doing the work, also have the ability to have that kind of financial reward for all of that being done. And this is what's really transformational. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you there. Um, I want to touch on one more of your tweets because I just found this <laughs> really funny. I'm going to have to close out my tweets. This is, this is, I'm going to have to start, I'm going to have to start getting rid of some of these. This one started like this. Answer me this. Number one, do you advocate for free markets? Number two, do you consider yourself a Bitcoin maximalist? I love scrolling through the comments because they were so, so mixed. Um, what prompted you to pose these two questions together? Were you trying to rile up some uh, some controversial responses? It's all about the follows, honestly. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, I'm not, it wasn't, a, it wasn't <laughs> trying to generate a lot of follows. Uh, actually, I probably lost a lot of follows then. But free market folks out there, libertarians, free market folks, you know, it is my opinion that if you're a true, truly a free market advocate, that you let the market resolve itself. If there are things that are being built in a market that have no utilization, that have no demand side to it, it will fade away and die. 
Um, but there are people out there, and unfortunately, specifically some of the, the ardent Bitcoin supporters, who really do not seem to want to see further innovation in distributed and decentralized systems. They want to you know, have everyone focus solely on Bitcoin and not on what I define as features, not bugs of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, for all intents and purposes, really is not designed to have elongated types of smart contracts in its code. Bitcoin has something called script that was put into it, but that script really is not defined or designed to do something like a smart contract on Ethereum, where that smart contract can be living for six days, six weeks, six months, to however long. And because of that limitation, and again, that limitation is a feature, not a bug, you know, there is this capacity for further innovation in the architecture of distributed and decentralized systems. A lot of those in the Bitcoin community, unfortunately, do not see it that way. They call these other digital assets things that I will not say on this podcast because I don't think that they're necessarily the right thing to say on a podcast, but they call them names. They refer to them in a negative connotation. And in my opinion, if those Bitcoiners who consider themselves free market capitalists should just say, okay, everyone have at it, you know, we'll let the markets decide, we'll let the users decide. And if those things are truly terrible, if those things are truly inefficient and provide no utility, then they're just going to fade away and die. Um, and so that's what I led to on that tweet is that, again, let the markets decide. Let the users, let the supply and demand side of the economic systems out there decide what happens. And if there is actual utility in other blockchains like Ethereum, Solana, and some of the others out there, that's fine. You know, there's enough out there in the world. There's over seven and a half billion people around the world. There are trillions of dollars of assets. You know, if you look at just the fixed income market in, in traditional fixed income, you know, in store of wealth, there's hundreds of trillions of dollars of value there. There is enough out there for disruption and total addressable markets that we as a community and digital assets should really not fight with each other. And there's been always a lot of this infighting. There's been all of this kind of tribalism. Some have equated it to religious zealotism. Mm -hmm. um, I just say, if you're really a free market person, if you're a Bitcoiner and you say that you're really a free market person, let the market decide what happens. Amen to that. <laughs> Let's talk about Arca. You guys raised a $10 million Series A round back in January, so earlier this year. How are those funds being put to use to make crypto more investable? So what we are building here is an institutional asset manager. And what does that mean? That means that when we first came into this world a number of years ago, we saw that a lot of the funds and a lot of the practitioners really did not have a background in capital markets. They didn't understand fiduciary responsibility. Now, there are people out there who do, and that has matured as we've gotten to scale here. We're starting to see more entrants that have that background. But what we noticed is that there was really this white space where you, know, you had folks out there that were, as I said again, the Bitcoin ideologues. You had folks that were doing more algorithmic type of trading. And then you had folks that were doing pure venture. Um, and so we saw a bit of a white space where we can use the, the resources and the experiences that myself and my team have to really create an asset manager 
that could speak to those that were outside of this box, the family offices, the institutional investors. And so we've been building that for the last three years. And with the capital that we raised in our Series A, it allows us to further the offerings that we can for institutional investors. Uh, in addition to um, the, the fund that we've been operating now for over two and a half years, uh, we'll be able to now expand those offerings to other segments of the market. Um, and so that allows us to also grow our team. Um, we are very, very focused on the, the type of people that we bring into our firm. Um, not only do they have to be ardent supporters of you know, what's happening here in this, information, in this kind of innovation and, and transformation, but they need to really also have a little bit of an understanding of you know, kind of markets out there. Um, and mm-hmm. so this allows us to find the right people, bring them in. We've grown our team you know, tremendously over the last three months since we announced that. Uh, and it allows us to bring in the right people who have the right experiences, the right passion for this. Uh, and that allows us to grow into more of a multi-strat asset management firm, similar to the things that you would see in traditional world of like a PIMCO or a BlackRock, where you have multiple different ways to show expression of the asset class, whether that's in liquid markets, whether that's in more traditional venture markets, whether that's in specific sectors like DeFi, it allows us to grow uh, over a time period and offer things that for institutional investors that are interested in this world, it gives them more potential and opportunity sets. Mm-hmm. And on your blog, you wrote something that I think frames the direction of the various types of offerings that will be rolling out. And that is Bitcoin remains unique, but no longer requires active management. Talk about the different types of passive investment strategies you guys have been thinking about that you are offering clients right now and what you'll be looking to offer in the near future. The world of those instruments that provided this idea of non-custodial Bitcoin that had very extreme differentials and deltas between premium and nav that unfortunately have been uh, the bane of some investors out there for the last few months, we think that that's not the right way to do things. We think in our DNA, we know because our CEO is the co-founder of the ETF company Wisdom Tree, we know that getting to lower fees, getting to more kind of systems that allow investors to have the type of vehicles that they really want that allow them for you know potential redemptions and not getting stuck into some of these kind of patterns is really kind of important. And so we're going to be putting those out. We, we work very hard to come up with structures that are beneficial for investors because obviously we came from that world and we want them to have the exposure to the asset or to the asset class the best way that they feel is, is good for them. And then, as I said, again, <clears throat> the other type of structures that we're looking to do throughout the year and through the next few years will further the the exposure to the asset class, whereas predominantly we've been uh, focused more on the liquid exposure of the markets for the last two and a half years. It will allow us to further expand on that. There are some new sectors that have evolved over the last year and a half or two years, for instance, like DeFi, uh, that have caught a lot of people's attention and they want to have exposure to that. In my opinion, DeFi is going to evolve into fixed income 2.0, where you're going to have a lot of those intermediaries that are going to be replaced by DeFi platforms that are being run on smart contracts. 
uh, and you'll have lending and borrowing and collateralizations happen that way. Uh, mm -hmm. It'll be a fairer and more transparent system. And potentially we would not have a 2007-8 Lehman crisis happen again because you have better transparency on what's happening there in terms of risk. And so we'll have a few different of those structures out there that will provide, as I said, you know, exposure to the broader market, not just to the liquid market, but to the broader market that hopefully investors will you know, see is value and value add. Lend, borrow. When you think about that space, the one thing that comes to mind as a lender is yield, right? What yield am I going to get on my Bitcoin, on my Ethereum, on my stablecoin assets? What are those conversations like right now with these family offices that you're speaking with when they hear about these relatively high APRs that they can get by lending their dollars out? What is their reaction like and what types of questions do they ask you? There's a lot of questions. Um, there's a lot of interest. I would say that that is yeah. something, you know, relative to what you see in fixed income right now, traditional fixed income, you're absolutely right. The yields are, are startling. Um, and so they want to understand the, the counterparty risk. You know, where is the money going to? And we do a extraordinary amount of work on counterparty risk assessment. Has the company or the platform had any material faults? You know, has there been a default at the company or have there been, especially with code-based ones, have there been any issues with the code? Has it been hacked? Do they carry insurance? One of the companies out there that we think very highly of is Nexus Mutual. And so for DeFi platforms out there, they have the ability to acquire insurance if there is a smart contract failure. And so that's very important in the overall risk assessment. And so a lot of you know the, the family offices and the institutional investors out there, first and foremost, acknowledge that there is something here that they're very interested in. Uh, obviously, as you alluded to, the yield is very attractive to them. But beyond the yield, they want to understand really where the money's going and the counterparties and how we can best ensure that we're not exposed to any single one out there and potentially have, you know, a significant capital loss. At the end of the day, you know, we're very proud uh, of being risk managers at the firm. We're very, very focused and we're very passionate about what's happening with distributed and decentralized systems and digital assets. But at the end of the day, we're also very, very, very focused on risk management. Uh, you know, we, we've seen what's happened with exchanges that have eviscerated capital. We've seen what's happened with other hedge funds in the space that use excessive amounts of leverage and have had material losses and potentially shutting down, especially last year. So of all things, you know, again, yield is great, but that risk assessment is even more important. And that's one of the things that they're really focused on. Got it. One trend I very much believe in is that Every crypto company is becoming a media house and utilizing a multimedia platform to carry conversations with the broader industry. Do you think Arca is headed in that direction? And what else would you like to be doing when it comes to reaching your institutional audience? So when we first really started the firm, as I said, about three years ago, we knew that it was going to take years uh, of educating and providing content and providing material for people to absorb and understand. And so at the very onset, we were writing every week. We write every week. Uh, we also uh, adapted something that I brought in from the outside. Uh, it's a annual summit 
called FO256, where we typically have around 200 family offices that attend that hear from some of the best investors and founders and lawyers in this space to get a sense of what's happening out there. And so not only is it great to have material that you can read, but also having material that you can see with your eyes, especially on YouTube. Uh, and then additionally to that, um, our podcasts. I've had my own podcast for the last two years called Base Layer, which Forbes acknowledged last year as one of the best for institutional investors. And I, I hopefully do a great job really boiling down very complex ideas within digital assets into formats that institutional investors can listen to and understand. So you're capturing not only the eyes, not only the ears, but also, uh, you know, as I said, again, material that can be used in a library sense that they can go back to on a regular basis and really kind of think about it more. And so that kind of, as you alluded to, Media House has been a very important part of us. We understand that, you know, creating that distribution engine of content uh, is just vital to people understanding this. And what we've seen <clears throat> over the last year is that, you know, the you know, kind of the proof is in, I, dare I say, the proof is in the pudding. I, I kind of feel like it's an old kind of dad saying, but the proof is in the pudding that, you know, it takes a while for people to really absorb all that content, absorb all that education, get a level of comfort, because this is highly transformational. This is different stuff. You know, this is not real estate. This is not, you know, some of the things that they've done in the past. You know, you're talking about some significant disruption that you're creating with digital assets. And so all of that has been wrapped up in, in, in different types of media that are you know, available for consumption, which we think is incredibly important and it's a part of our ethos. And so, you know, again, we saw such a transformation last year with COVID uh, and with some of the global macro dynamics where people really started to embrace that material, especially the weekly material and the podcasts. They started to embrace that. They started to really anchor down and understand what we were talking about and ask us questions. The level of questions has been such a increase over the last few months where people said, I don't like Bitcoin, but I like this blockchain thing. And now people are saying, okay, well, what happens when in 2104, when the last Bitcoin is mined, you know, what happens after that? How is, how is the network continuously incentivized to continue to do the work? I got that question two weeks ago and I was floored. That's a great question. That's a real legitimate question about Bitcoin. And then someone yesterday alone asked me about Ethereum's new EIP, EIP 1559, which I tweeted about yesterday too. And there is a rewarding feeling to it. You feel mm -hmm. great about it. Um, and so that's definitely something that we're, we're definitely noticing is very important for us. Yeah, the conversations are getting technical, but that doesn't mean they're getting boring, right? People, again, just want to know how to look at this asset class from multiple dimensions. So that's awesome that you're getting such a broad range of questions from these family offices and, and institutional investors that you're speaking with. Well, David, it's been a pleasure so far chatting with you. I've learned so much about family offices and their mindset when it comes to understanding the universe of digital assets. I wanted to end on one final note that I hope is a fun one. Someone you follow and comment on a fair bit on Twitter is Mr. Beast, who has an enormous uh, social influence, enormous following for some of the marketing campaigns that he's done, especially in this past year. What is the impact 
social influencers like Mr. Beast have on crypto adoption and education? First, shout out to Jimmy and the team over there, Mr. Beast. Uh, I love what they're doing, especially on the philanthropical side. And what they're doing right now is providing ways for younger generations to see what you can do by being a influencer. Influencer is not just you know having a Gucci bag or a new pair of sneakers and doing the open box stuff. They're actually you know showing what you can do with helping people who are homeless, buying food and taking it to you know a food delivery, uh, a pantry place where people who don't have any food or any any money can actually go. And so what they're doing is really, really important for society and showing that you can bridge that uh, and create amazing, interesting content. I know that Jimmy and the team over there typically like to give out money to people who are especially hard hit, whether it's by COVID or other hard economic times. And, you know, I've had an open dialogue with him for about a year or so, you know, talking about Bitcoin as a potential asset that he could give away to because it has the ability to accrete and become more more worthwhile and purposeful over the next few years. And so he's been open to it. You know, we continuously talk about it. When Elon Musk did the whole Bitcoin thing in his profile, you know, Jimmy and Mr. Beast <laughs> and the whole team there did it too. I love talking to them. They're on the cutting edge of content and philanthropic work. And uh, I'm very supportive of what they do there. Excellent. Well, David, thanks so much for sharing your time with us on the show. I know this will be invaluable information for our audience as they get a sneak peek into the minds of the family office world. David, thank you so much again. It was my pleasure. Thank you. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.